0: The talk tonight is about unconditional love. When our umbilical cord is cut, there's a way in which we're brought into this world and perceived as separate. And in the human journey um, there are two ways that I think we go about trying to understand who we are. There's a quotation from Sreena Love tells me I'm everything, wisdom tells me I'm nothing, between the two my life flows. Unconditional love or metta, is seeing ourselves through this mirror of love tells me I'm everything. It's coming to try to understand who we are uh, through this doorway of all-embracing love. So love tells me I'm everything. Uh, Within that (coughs) teaching, there's a deep understanding that we misperceive that at that point of the umbilical cord being cut that we're separate, that we're really not separate that there is this interconnectedness with all of life, with all beings in the universe the metta practice is very healing because it helps us break the barrier between any duality that we perceive, between I and any kind of other the duality is not true. Metta helps us relax into the perspective that wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Sometimes we might hear that wisdom tells me I'm nothing or hear about no-self or anatta, emptiness. And if we don't have any sense of being held with metta, There's a way in which we might perceive that emptiness as hollow, or terrifying. The metta helps heal that hollowness in our perception of this emptiness or nothingness. (coughs) Metta is a container for emptiness, and it can hold and strengthen us. It heals any kind of alienation or duality. It helps heal any kind of brokenness of spirit or self-hatred, disconnection. Can we afford not to develop this? The Dalai Lama said that no human being is born without the need for love that it's essential for our survival. And in fact, babies will die if they don't get enough uh, affection. The Dalai Lama recently came to Hawaii, and he said that human beings can survive without religion, but they can't survive without love. Unconditional love, is, it's like the foundation for life itself, it's like the fabric of this universe. In our Western culture, but I think um, it's becoming more of a planetary problem, there's a way in which our hearts are living in a desert of metta. And metta can be like a moisturizer I have um, very dry skin and every day I put on a moisturizer and I often recommend to people that they put uh, on metta as a daily moisturizer for the dryness of heart that we have grown up with in this culture. It's an incredibly simple practice. It's simply, it's simply learning to wish ourselves well or to wish another well. And our survival is dependent upon this. That's how essential it is. The Buddha said that the experience of metta is like when a mother cow gives birth to a newborn calf. And as you know, when you give birth, you can't control what happens to that calf you can't control what happens to the life of a child or a human being when that umbilical cord is cut there's no way the parent can control what happens there's no um, wishing for a result that has any guarantee but it's that moment of wishing well that very pure wish this is what the Buddha meant by metta and can you imagine feeling about yourself that way? Truly, deeply, wishing yourself well, just like a mother cow would feel upon giving birth to a newborn calf. When I was doing the metta practice for myself, sometimes I would imagine a mother cow licking a calf, and even though I would feel a sort of rough tongue, you know, that feeling of tenderness and care would feel so healing for me. And that might not be a metaphor that would work for you. Maybe a kind of rough tongue from a cow, (laughs) you know. (laughs) That might not be what you connect with in terms of metta. But whatever image works for you, I would really try to find some metaphor that you connect with for this feeling. It's strengthening. I found that for myself and other people doing this metta practice that the biggest obstacle is self-judgment. We tend to be such perfectionists, and we think we need to be perfect at this practice. And we can be very competitive with ourselves. So there'll be a sense that because there's this word metta, and that we're doing the metta practice, We think that we should be bathing in this all-embracing love most of the time. So it is easy to judge, you know, the practice, if you're using that uh, image as that's how you're supposed to feel, then we feel like something's going wrong. Not remembering that it's a practice, it's another practice, just like the Vipassana practice In some ways, I think we believe that metta should flow naturally and spontaneously. It's like when I started taking the course in the Hawaiian language, somehow I felt that the Hawaiian language should flow out of my mouth fluently with very little effort. Or I think, you know, maybe we think Mozart should flow out of our fingertips when we sit down to play the piano without any practice. It should be so natural and spontaneous. But there's so much practice involved in a spontaneous playing of the piano. And there's so much practice involved in speaking a language. Look how much practice. I was spending some time with a little boy today that's learning how to write and read. And just to see him making that effort over and over again to know what the, the letter N is, because his name is Nadie, and to see him like trying to connect that num- that letter with a sound, that takes enormous practice over and over. Unconditional love takes even more practice for it to be this natural, spontaneous flowing from the heart. So it's not just a matter of spontaneity. I, did a, I taught a weekend in Hawaii this spring and an old Hawaiian man came to the retreat and he said at the end that he realized that the spiritual path was so vast and he held his arms out really wide. It's so vast like the Pacific Ocean. And then he said, but I realize that what I can do in a moment is very tiny, but it's everything. You know, it's vast, but what we can do in a moment it's tiny, but it's, it's a lot. The metta practice, even a thought of metta, is very powerful. We tend to minimize when we just have the thought without the feeling. But to, to have a wish may you be happy and maybe you're not <laughs> bending over with rapture but just to say to someone or yourself may you be happy it's it's very different than just sitting there thinking I would like to do this when I get out of the retreat and I plan to do that when I get out of the retreat and you know planning mind is very different than doing a phrase over and over again may you be happy There's great power in the thought. It doesn't have to have the feeling. Of course, we like it when the the understanding is there. The more understanding is there. May you be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. When we truly understand that and have the feeling, one can even feel the power of it even more. But don't underestimate or minimize one metta phrase it has tremendous power it's very significant to be able to make that wish when I first started to do metta practice uh, as a full day-to-day practice with Upandita, I remember uh, getting instructions from him and going in and he said, well, just do yourself for five or ten minutes and when you make that connection very deeply, move on to the benefactor and do on the benefactor the rest of the time. And I walked out thinking, uh-oh five or ten minutes, you know, I just couldn't believe (laughs) that I was supposed to do myself five or ten minutes and then of the benefactor the rest of the time because I knew it would take me much longer to make that connection with myself. Um, It was like a joke. And I started doing the phrases, the traditional phrases, may I be happy and peaceful of mind. And this cynical voice would come in and say, yeah, right. You know, it would just be like... It was just... And then when I'd get to May I be strong and healthy a body, which I have a body that breaks down a lot, say, so May I be strong and healthy a body, this voice would go, Fat chance on that one. You know, you'll be lucky if you have any health at all. You know, and it would just be... Ama- <laughs> this... Cynical, judgmental, critical, cruel voice would come in when I was doing the phrases. Um, and So if that would happen, I started to learn to switch the phrases to, may I be happy just as I am. May I be peaceful no matter what's happening. May I love myself completely because it would change the tone for me to this unconditional acceptance. You know, that no matter, even if there was this voice that was so critical, uh, there was another place that I could um, get to just by changing the phrases to phrases that helped me accept exactly where I was. It was very powerful, that shift to melting that kind of cruelty That I felt for myself. Upandita had me do a benefactor, the same person, for a month. And about two weeks into the retreat, I was convinced I was failing at the practice. You know, I thought, oh, he'd switch me to a dear friend if I was doing good at this practice. And I had to fight constantly with that feeling that I wasn't doing well. And then after a month, when he switched me to a dear friend and I saw what the teaching was, that you build up what's easy and you build up what's easy and you strengthen it and strengthen it and strengthen it. When I shifted it was amazing to see the power of what had built up in that month. And it's not that, you know, when you do the benefactor it really is supposed to be someone that doesn't bring up a lot of stuff. Because you 'll see when you move on to other beings that usually if you do it day in and day out, it might not happen if you do it once a day or twice a day, but if you do it all day, every day, usually every little thing <laughs> that 's happened with that person will surface it's a very healing practice, uh, and it was powerful to build it up the strength of what with the person that was easy, even now. You know, no matter what's happening, if I shift to that person, it's just like, oh yeah, by the power of doing it for so long, it's that like practicing Mozart or practicing a language, it comes easier and easier. I also was working with a student over some years who couldn't do anybody but herself. And she kept feeling really guilty and like that she should be able to send it for other people. And I just said, you know, just do yourself. You know, Just, just do yourself. And for the last three or four years, she's just done herself. And she came to a retreat in New Mexico that Steven and I were teaching. And in the middle of the retreat, we were doing some metta. And for the first time in four years, she could extend it to someone else. And I was so impressed, because she raised her hand at the end, and she, you know, she was crying, and she was just like, it happened. She just let it build up for herself enough until she felt it deep enough. And it, it naturally spills out when you can feel it for yourself deeply. It, it's natural for it to want to spill over to other beings. So it was wonderful for me to see that for her. She was so grateful. She had such a history of feeling that it was selfish to wish it for herself. It was such a barrier for her. Stephen talked about the importance of spiritual friends and his meta talk, for me, when I was doing the benefactor, I just started to appreciate more and more how much of a lifeline spiritual friends are for us. You know, they're like a, a lighthouse, you know, those lighthouses that have the light and the, in the foggy sea. There's a kind of way in which we can orient ourselves when we're lost. I came across a little poem by Rosalind Brown about friendship. She said, What are friends for? My mother asks. A duty undone. A visit missed. A casserole unbaked for sick Jane. Nothing. They are for nothing, friends, I think. All they can do in the end they touch you, they fill you like music. A spiritual friend, it, they fill you like music, and this it might not be a human being, it might be a cat or a dog, uh, but there's that way in which a spiritual friend touches you and opens the heart and that's the way in which they help us um, survive life, feeling separate. They help us find the truth that we aren't separate. One of the teachings in doing the practice of metta is when you, when you go to somebody, you're supposed to think of that person's positive qualities, which are any qualities that touch you about the person. It's how do they fill us with music, and maybe they're generous, or kind, or wise, or humorous, but there's usually some way in which they touch us. I found that by practicing that, every walking and every sitting with one person, reflecting on this person's positive qualities, and then continuing the practice and every time I went to a person to think of that person's positive quality it was such a powerful practice in itself that even with a difficult person I might uh, might struggle <laughs> with trying to find a, a positive quality and the person I was doing I finally decided oh she's a good cook <laughs> And it was really funny because I thought, well, is that good enough? <laughs> is that a good enough quality that she's a good cook? <laughs> and there'd always it's so funny how the critic would come in and judge, but that there was a generosity in this person's cooking and it would help me warm to the person. I have a friend in Hawaii that um, when we started teaching metta she'd say, well, I can't feel it for myself I can't feel it for my husband I can't feel it for my children I hate this practice, I hate it when you teach metta and she'd feel more and more guilty and more and more self-hatred and she was the one who taught me how you know, what what would work for her and it was her cat and for years she spent Meta doing her cat and I've seen it just open up for her you know she had to start where she was and that has taught me more than anything that you know maybe we need to do ourselves for a long time maybe we need to do another human another being like a cat for a long time but it's really to trust that you can start anywhere wherever you are with it there's a place to start and that it's okay may I be happy just where I am there's a dog that lives around the loop named Lizzie, and you might have noticed that she comes by here, she's a hundred and twenty years old and she looks like it (laughs) she's walking really funny she's got very little hair, her hair is falling out and she comes around Uh, And she had a stroke a while ago and she didn't, she laid down for about a week and didn't eat and her her parents were feeding her water with a turkey baster. Uh, And then somehow she made it and she's still alive. And I think of her coming over here, it's like I always think that she comes over here to give interviews. (laughs) And it's like she has a mission. And I really think that's what keeps her alive. You know, she'll, I'll, I'll see her head out over here. It's a miracle that she gets over here. I mean, I can't believe she can still walk over here. And I'll th- always, you know, some people think it's because she gets love here. But there's also, I think she's also really got a job. <laughs> Yeah, you know, she's really extending a lot of metta here. She receives it, and there's that where that boundary breaks down. You know, there's no no separation. There is no wizzy. There's no us. There's just that that love, that unconditional love, and I see it has such a pull for her here. It's wonderful. In the West, I think that it's often the other beings that can touch and open our heart. And that's okay. You know, whether it's a child, or an elder, or a chipmunk. I mean, it's really hard to keep in a good bad mood if you feed a chickadee, or if you feed a chipmunk. I mean, chipmunks, (laughs) you know, they're so much fun. They're so light. just to look at one moving they're so um, strange (laughs) 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 and it's hard to keep in one's kind of foul mood if you stay with a chipmunk for a while They're, they're really gifts for us I can't imagine being on this planet without all these other beings there are relatives So however you relate to benefactor, it's a great gift if you can find a human being. You're lucky. It's a blessing in itself to have a spiritual friend. If you can't and you get to dear friend, to have a dear friend in this world is a blessing. And to have a cat or a memory of a dog, a memory of a dear friend, no matter where we are, that person or that being is our our lighthouse it's our way out of this duality this prison that we perceive ourselves to be in Yesterday I was driving along the road and there was a turtle a painted turtle in the middle of the road and I had seen a truck in the back in the rearview mirror and I've been through this before the years being at IMS finding uh, turtles that had been run over so I decided to stop the car uh, and pick up the turtle and bring it to the side of the road so I picked it up and I, its tail looked really funny and I thought it had been hit and it wasn't it, it was really pulled in and I thought it might be dead but there was a leech on the back of the turtle, <clears throat> and i 'd never would imagine a leech on the back of the turtle. but I have some unpleasant association with leeches it's like, it 's like I was like yuck it was like a leech i just it was just like total aversion (laughs) the whole thing is turtle it's like a leech (laughs) and the difference between what i felt for the turtle i love the (laughs) turtle And yeah, this leech was just like the worst thing that ever existed in my mind. And so I, I took a stick and I was trying to get the leech off the back of the turtle. And for five minutes, I'm like, "Yeah, leech on the back of the it. Yeah, leech." <laughs> and I get the leech off, and it's like, you know, what is the big deal? <laughs> you know, I just, you know, open to this poor little leech that was just kind of like upside down in the grass. You know. <laughs> You know, it was like, "Pardon me, <laughs> no, I'm, just, I'm just a leech doing my thing." And <laughs> it's amazing to watch this discrepancy in my own heart, you know. And I, so I just sat there. May you be happy even if you're a leech. <laughs> it's not my fault that you took birth <laughs> you know, I went on and on doing this thing. And finally, I felt that I broke the barrier. It's probably temporary. <laughs> I don't know what it is about leeches. (laughs) Metta is an incredible mirror for our way of relating to ourselves and others. It's all about relationship. This is a quotation from Anayas Nin. And then the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. I think of this as the metta practice, and then the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. When we start to do the metta, it can Initially, often lift a lot of grief for all the moments that we haven't experienced metta in this life. One realizes, you know, what is off? You know, what is going on? And it can lift a lot of things. It's a purification practice, it can make visible desire, wanting, lust, it can make visible anger, hatred. And the more we experience metta, the more we'll feel. You know, The more we open, the more we'll feel things. And sometimes we might notice that the heart is closed, or tight, or numb. Or maybe we notice that the heart aches. Or maybe it will feel dead, or lonely, or we might feel unlovable. Uh, There are many ways in which, when the heart starts to melt, we start to feel things that made us close up into a bud. But the more we do metta, I think the more we'll find out what metta is and what it isn't. And usually, as you open, the more one discovers that one will choose to strengthen the metta. It becomes more and more of an intention or choice. To move toward that it's okay to be happy. It's a kind of willingness to feast on love. You know, it's a willingness to feast on this all-embracing love in this world. It's important not to limit how we will think what the experience of metta is. When we're touched by metta, sometimes it will bring up tears of joy or gratitude. Sometimes it might bring up a bittersweet feeling. Sometimes it will bring up a poignant feeling. Sometimes there'll be this spacious openness. Sometimes a deep acceptance. Maybe there'll be a very quiet happiness. And sometimes it will just be a very deep feeling of quiet. So to limit it to any any experience is um, a mistake. There are many, many ways that being touched by metta is itself in our heart, in our mind. The first time I did the metta practice uh, For six weeks in Australia, I remember it was really cold there. That's my memory of this place in Australia, it's cold. And I was really sick of doing metta. You know, I I, I would hit these places of just hating to do metta practice. And I would hate the benefactor, and I would hate doing metta, and I would feel like, you're doing really well at this practice. (laughs) and Usually that would hit me, that major aversion, uh, early in the morning. I'm not a morning person. And I was getting up really early. And I wouldn't be able to have my caffeine yet, because we couldn't have it till the sun rose. Um, So I I found the spot to do walking meditation. And it was right next to the kitchen. And there was this man cooking the retreat that, and he didn't have much help and and he just worked constantly and he'd get up so early and I would feel his love of the Dharma and I'd feel his love of the practice and I'd feel all of the service the care that he was putting into the food. Uh, And just walking there every morning uh, experiencing him, him not wanting to get up really but that metta he was putting in the food, and it would just melt me. I'd feel so grateful that he was doing all this work so that I could be going through the anger, you know, so that I could go through this opposite of metta, the aversion. Sometimes it helps to reflect, like just being here, and all the work the staff does. To keep us going, it's incredible, metta, and we're so protected here. The woods, the the feeling of nurturing that we get from the forest, or from the staff, or from the grounds, it, metta is a protection. And when I would do the walking next to the cook, I would feel protected and held, and it would give me the. Um, The spirit to keep going through the difficulty. I would have my little tantrum and then I would be fine. It was sort of a wonderful feeling to be able to hate the metta practice, you know, just to be totally okay with it. And it felt like another place of metta. One of the deepest things that surfaced for me in the metta practice uh, that felt like a killer kind of surfacing was uh, deprivation from my early childhood. And there was a, a place where I felt like I was just holding my heart in my hand. It was like it was almost dead. And it was like I could find this one little coal live coal. And sometimes I'd walk around going, (laughs) (laughs) like I was just trying to revive this coal. Uh, It was very powerful and it was really painful at times. And I, I realized that I had so much aversion to neediness. It's like this really deep place of neediness that hadn't been responded to. Well, it was responded to probably with aversion. And so I learned to have aversion toward this neediness. Uh, and underneath that was this feeling of not being worth love. Not being lovable. And we we often hate ourselves for this. You know, this is often the root of self-hatred. I'd, felt like I'd gotten to the core of self-hatred. And I'd get to this place, when I say it was like holding uh, almost like a dead heart in my hand, it was like I felt like I would die if I didn't get meta, And that's where it really is the source of our survival. And we can get kind of mixed up, I think, in the teaching around attachment. You know, that attachment is not okay, or suffering, but there is a level where uh, you know, having a relationship is at the core of our survival. It doesn't mean that we don't have friendship, it doesn't mean that even if we're 80, that we don't need friendship. It's the attachment that's the suffering, but the friendship is the fabric of life. It's important. So it took time for me. One of the ways that I saw the metta and the vipassana um, intersect was when that neediness came up. I would have to do vipassana. I would have to open to that experience of being unlovable or needy. And then I would break the barrier to myself it was like I had to go all the way back to that infant uh, and feel that experience deeply which the Vipassana practice gave me the strength to do remember that metta is love with understanding and we don't break the barrier to ourselves or another without the understanding and so I really came to appreciate how the vipassana works with the metta, that it really helps, you know, without the vipassana we don't really have that ability to open to the difficult, to the painful, and to break that barrier that we have to ourselves. Sometimes when I was experiencing that, I would do compassion practice as well. And I remember when I learned the compassion practice, I had this thought, you know, why didn't anybody teach me this before? It felt like learning the compassion was like being given gold. And I felt like I'd been given everything. It was like the missing piece to my practice. Because when that neediness would come up, when I'd be walking around going, may I be happy? (laughs) You know, it just, may I be happy, may I be happy, when one's sort of in a lot of pain. It doesn't quite (coughs) cut the mustard. It doesn't quite meet it. But the compassion is about opening the heart to pain. The compassion means that we have to be willing to touch the pain. But it's not going into it and drowning in it. It's just touching it with care. So the combination of the vipassana, the compassion, and the metta felt like it just really uh, cleansed that layer. It was so powerful for me. I find that the metta practice heals wherever we learn to abandon ourselves. And there's no blame in that. You know, it's like wherever we learned it, usually our parents learned it, and whatever. It's like we learn, we learn. We're we're human beings that learn, uh, and and the metta and the vipassana are a way to learn not to abandon ourselves. Every time we come back to the present moment with mindfulness, we're here for ourselves. Every time we come back to the metta, we haven't abandon ourselves. It's a very profound shift, transformation. Love tells me I'm everything. Who am I? This summer, Stephen and I went to a Hopi reserv- the Hopi Reservation in Arizona and it inspired me to read a bit more about their belief system. When um, a child is born, a Hopi child, they are given a uh, ear of corn and it's called corn mother and the corn has to be a perfect ear of corn and the child is kept in darkness for 20 days. The child isn't allowed to be in the light and the corn mother is put next to the child and kept with the child at all times. Corn is painted on the walls of the house of the room the child is in and the ceilings and there are many different things done for the child in that 20 days, but the child's kept in darkness. And on the 20th day, in the morning, before the sunrise, while it's still dark, all of the aunts of the child come and have uh, a corn mother, a perfect ear of corn that they, they carry. The grandmother has one, the aunts, and the mother. And they pass the uh, corn mother from the navel of the child up to the head four times. And each aunt each and the mother and the grandmother give the child a name. And then they they basically do metta. They wish the child a healthy life, uh, a happy life. And then as the sun starts to rise, uh, the mother carries the child out to the sun and gives the child to the sun uh, and wishes again some more metta for the child, for happiness and health. And the child isn't considered to be born until the moment that it touches that sunlight. And there's a quite a, a interesting reason for this, is that the Hopis believe that the parents are just, the human parents are just instruments for the uh, spiritual parents to manifest. So they always have a corn mother, the corn mother is the earth, there's two aspects to the mother, there's the earth mother and the corn mother, and then the father is the son and their creator, they always have two aspects, so the, the corn mother is the earth mother that the child is kept with, the corn mother, and then given to the son is the father. And they believe that the Earth Mother, Son, Father are the real parents, not the human parents. So if you can imagine being brought into that, you know that you have these parents from the very be- beginning; that you're considered belonging to the universe. And the child is taught that at age like seven and eight. There's another whole initiation uh, into understanding that the parents aren't the real parents, that there's these other universal parents that that we have. And what happens is as the child gets older and moves into adulthood, their responsibility to the universe just keeps deepening as they understand that it's a quite a different perspective on who we are. Who am I? But it, this is what this is the fabric that tends to be missing in the culture. It's like the meta. If you can feel sometimes just by going out in nature, how there'll be a feeling of just being out in the backwoods here, for example, you'll, f- you'll be able to touch that reassurance, that feeling of being a child of the universe, belonging here, that holds us. And remembering that, that the metta that holds us helps us relax into the nothingness, the emptiness. I wanted to talk a bit about how the metta relates to vipassana in relationship to unconditional love. There's a poem that I have that I don't know who wrote it, but I found it many years ago, and it's called Love. Learn to love everything. Caress the rough and the hard. Nourish the unnameable. The roots will not tangle. Learn to love everything as the sea turbulent without and calm within. Be like a stream, go everywhere. With a thousand voices singing, Love everything. That's part of the poem. Years ago, during the three-month retreat, a Zen teacher named Sansanin used to come and do a talk. and I used to hear him when I was sitting the three-month retreat. And one time he asked a question to the group because that's how he tended to teach through a dialogue, he said, What is love? And he asked it three times. What is love? What is love? And it's like the answer is just what's happening. This is where the vipassana and the metta intersect again. It's like there's a hollowness to it if there isn't a kind of care or tenderness or quality of vulnerability in our awareness. But when the awareness just really just is a mirror, that reflects what is happening in the moment, and that is love. Unconditional love isn't just about pleasure. And our idea of love tends to be centered around self centered desire. You know, that we tend to think of a person as somebody we love if we get love from them. What do we love? You know, what do we love in a person? What do we love in ourselves? Do we love greed, hatred, and delusion in another? Do we love Greed, hatred, and delusion in ourselves. Someone asked me once, you know, what I thought a courageous heart is. And a courageous heart to me is this kind of love. It's a courage um, to love the unpleasant aspects of a being like a leech, the, to love the unpleasant aspects of a person as well as the pleasant. Love is something very deep. It includes every aspect of a person. I don't know if some of you have seen the movie Shadowlands, but it's about a writer named C.S. Lewis. And he asked a question in the movie, in his life, that I thought was quite powerful. He asked, why love? when it hurts so much to lose it. This again is where Vipassana and Metta intersect. How can we love, how can we really stay open to the moment when it's just passing over and over again? How can we love someone when they can leave us or hurt us at any moment? Why why stay open? Why risk opening from a bud to a flower when we have to risk feeling pain. It's a very fragile world that we live in if we're needing outside of ourselves this unconditional love if we don't have it inside for ourselves. The human world of love isn't so dependable because human beings aren't perfect. Human beings have greed, hatred and delusion at times. That's why we're here, to learn how to love. I felt like several years ago when the Persian Gulf War was happening that I came up against what unconditional love is versus conditional love is really powerfully. My nephew who I have a very deep connection with, and he's like a son to me, and I helped raise, uh, was in the Persian Gulf War as a Marine, and he was on the front lines. And so I would be doing metta, and I'd have the image of President Bush at the time, and I'd try to send him metta, and I'd say, you know, may you be happy, and then that voice, if you stop the war, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, if you stop the war." That there'd be that condition. And then I would do Saddam Hussein, and I'd see his face, and I'd say, you know, may you be happy if you stop the war. There'd again be that condition, and that would be so painful for me to have to face that voice. And then I'd try to do my nephew, and I was really surprised that that was hard, because I'd say, May you be happy if you don't die. May you be peaceful if you live. I was really attached to him staying alive. And it was over and over, day after day after day after day, coming up against that conditional love on such a deep level. And it taught me so much about what is conditional love and what isn't. You know, unconditional love includes everything. It includes that people leave. It includes that people die. It includes that there's war. It really goes deep. And it, it isn't so easy. That's why we start with the easy. And we work to what's more difficult. When I would break the barrier, it would be such a powerful contrast, it really taught me a lot about unconditional love. Whenever I would shift to accepting whatever happened totally, that's where the understanding is, that's where it intersects with vipassana. There's a quotation from a poem by Mary Oliver that I like a lot because, to me, the metta, all of what I've been talking about is the metta is really a protection, it's a sanctuary, it's a refuge, and uh, we can develop a sanctuary for ourselves and others in our own heart a shelter. So this is a poem by Mary Oliver. Once only, and then in a dream, I watched while secretly, and with the tenderness of a caring woman, a cow gave birth to a red calf, tongued him dry and nursed him in a warm corner of the clear night, in the fragrant grass, in the wild domains of the prairie spring and I asked them in my dream I knelt down and asked them to make room for me in the metta practice this is what we're doing, we're making room for everything we're making room for anger, we're making room for neediness, we're making room for unlovability we're making room for that inside ourselves and outside ourselves for peace, for war, for birth, for death. It's this incredible shelter that we develop inside of ourselves that's boundless, that has no boundaries. Let's sit for a few minutes.